Welcome to Africa's LSP podcast, where we explore the world of translation, interpretation, and localization, as well as connect with the language industry's top players. From language service providers to the businesses and individuals who rely on their services, we'll be delving into the challenges, opportunities, and trends shaping the industry. Join us as we discover the power of language and the impact it has on connecting Africa and the world. Brought to you by Bolingo Consult and hosted by Nat Kintela. Africa's LSP podcast is the go-to podcast for all things language in Africa. Hello and welcome to a special finale of season three of Africa's LSP podcast. I'm Natkin Taylor, and I had the privilege of being your host throughout the season. Um, today we are wrapping up an amazing season filled with incredible stories about languages, cultures, and the language service industry in Africa. Join me as we revisit highlights from each episode, celebrating the diverse voices and insights that made the journey so special. Um, let's start with the first episode of season three, where we explored the roots of Lingala with Dr. Merwes a Belgian professor of Lingala and African Social Linguistics at the Ghent University in Belgium. Listen to a snippet of that episode. Well, my story with Lingala uh, is the following. I was a student in the second half of the 1980s at Ghent University, at the same university where I'm working now. And Lingala was an elective course. I took that elective course and after a while I tried using the things I had learned in that elective course. I tried using that in conversations with uh, the many Congolese friends that I already had in Belgium, because um, the Congolese community is a very important one in Belgium because of the historical ties between the two uh, countries. Uh, so I was trying that language or what I had learned uh, with those speakers, and they said, well, you're talking a very weird form of Lingala. We, we don't talk like that. Uh, so I went back to my professor and I, I, I told him that in a polite way. Of course, I didn't want to attack him in any way. Um, and he started explaining me and he said, yeah, well, what, what I'm teaching you in class is in fact a, uh, a variety of Lingala that was um, created by missionaries in the beginning of the 20th century. And that indeed is quite remote from the language as is as it is actually spoken. So immediately I started to get interested by that. I said, okay, so this language has many varieties and there's one variety apparently that is not even spoken by its native speakers, but that was created, that was designed, that was engineered by outsiders, by white missionaries. So I started digging deeper into the history of the language. And ever since um, my fascination with the language and with its history has, has grown. And uh, I'm, I'm talking about almost 30 years ago, and I'm still a scholar of Lingala now. I'm a professor of Lingala now and, and of its history and of its grammar. Great. And then in the following episode, we highlighted Sylvain Agbolo's dedication to preserving and promoting African languages. Let's hear a bit of that as well. Okay, so basically, uh, this is my take on your question, that the African language industry is evolving, though not personally at a pace that I would have wanted it to. However, uh, we are not sluggish uh, in terms of uh, being African language providers. 
service providers, that is, uh, providing language services into or from African languages. The industry is evolving day in and day out. However, there is more we can do. So last year, I started writing a series of uh, articles on stakeholders that actually can't promote and should promote African languages. Some of them are language uh, professionals, translators, interpreters, um, policy makers, governments, you know, uh, publishers, and all of that. And so I've realized that if we do not own our languages, there's nothing we can do about preserving uh, African languages. And so the language industry must keep uh, acting or should continue to act in the preservation of the African languages in that translators, publishers also have a role to play because most of them say that one of the challenges is that people do not really buy uh, books published in African languages. That should not be the case because this is a collaborative effort to preserve African languages. Parents should buy books uh, that are written in African languages for their children. Governments should also buy books that are written in African languages so that these books can be used in the various schools. Authors, writers, should not only, especially I'm talking about African writers, should not only write in English or the colonial uh, languages like English, French, Portuguese and all of that. They should also write in their mother tongue because they can write in their mother tongue. The beautiful ideas that they pen down in their books should be also transferred into the, uh, their mother tongue. If, in case they cannot, then they should seek for translators who can actually translate into the mother tongue. So take, for instance, uh, this renowned author, Nguji Wathiongo. In 2019, decided never to write in English anymore unless he writes in Gikuyu or, or other African languages that he, he understands. And then until that is done, before he will actually translate it into English. Why? Because he said in his quote, and I quote him, if you know how to speak your mother tongue and learn other languages, that is empowerment. But if you do not know your mother tongue, but you know other languages, that is enslavement. That is where it begins. So there's a need for writers to follow the steps of Nguji Wathiongo. Translators should also better themselves in being able to take up these books that are in other languages and translate them uh, into, into African languages. Right. And then in the month of March, we had this immersive dive into the Yoruba language and culture with Olua Damilari, a personal favorite, actually. A quick listen and we'll be back. Thank you, Nat. So Yoruba language is in two forms. We have the grammatical aspect and then we have the literary aspect. Some call it literature. It's fine. So without the grammar, well, we have, you know, our words coming together. There will not be any word that will be formed. And for the literary aspect, that's where we have the culture. That's where you get to know the people, see the people and know what they stand for as a Yoruba people. Right. There is this yearly event that you know, happens somewhere in your body. They call it Ojudioba. You will see people dressing up, wearing beautiful Yoruba clothes and all showcasing their food, showcasing who they are. That is part of the literary aspect of Yoruba language culture. And then the language is where we have grammar. 
this is a bit difficult. If you are not good with sound, you will not understand what you are hearing. So if I say ori and ori, they sounded alike. But if you pay attention, let me say that again, ori and ori, that is different in the tonation, right? Ori means head, head. And then ori, that's shea butter. So if you do not have a basic understanding of your Yoruba tone, you will not know that there are differences in some of the words that you hear. So the grammatical aspect helps us to understand Yoruba more and understand the meaning of words that is being constructed. Awesome. In the episode right after that, we explored the emerging trends and opportunities in the language services industry in Africa through the insights of Christian Elonge, Managing Director for the Cabot Group. Let's listen to a snippet of that. Hmm, interesting, interesting. You know, I think when you were developing the question, there are many thoughts that come to that 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 came to mind, you know. Uh the first thought that came to mind was actually something that my mom used to say. My mom is a francophone in Cameroon. She used to say that c'est la patate qui va accepter qu'on la mange cru. You know, it's like, you know, it is potato that has accepted to be eaten freshly, you know, without being cooked. Mm. Uh, meaning that, you know, uh, if I want to replicate it to the statement I want to make, it is African who are allowing yeah. to be mistreated yeah. or to be neglected or to be underestimated, you know. Exactly. For example, let me just use an, a parallel or an analogy. Have you realized that you would difficultly find a Western movie where maybe, you know, a white person is simulating an Indian? or a Japanese. No, they will always make sure that when it comes to other races or other groups, you know, they bring on board people who actually come from that group so that those people can effectively, you know, communicate in the appropriate language, with the appropriate idiolect, with the appropriate manners, you know. So if they are doing that for when it comes to other culture, it is because they know the implication right. in case they are error, in case they are glitches, you know, they know the implication are going to be huge. But when it comes to Africa, you know, that same concern, that same attention to details is not replicated. Mm-hmm. And I believe it is the consequence of the mindset, you know, unconsciously, everything that we do is influenced by what we think. You know, so if they think lowly of us, it's natural that they will just go about doing it with what they have, you know, uh, using people who are not from the country or from the culture just to make it happen, you know, and, and, and even make sure that the money stay within, you know, their, their cycle. And that is why, you know, I, I believe that from the language industry component, you know, which is the angle that we are talking about here, because the debate is huge. It's not just in the language industry. There are many other aspects where we see those things happening. But in the language service industry, what needs to be done from this perspective is the need to have a strong voice, a strong network, to have what we call, you know, a common platform where we can have standard practices. You know, we can make it in such a way that it becomes difficult, you know, to think or work on any movie or any cultural product where African languages are, you know, integrated without going, you know, for a language consultant that can confirm the quality of what is being said Mm -hmm. in it, you know. But when we come to Africa, we realize that, you know, most of what we see in the language industry is isolation. We have a network of African translator in East Africa. We have one in South Africa, but in Central Africa, we have none. In West Africa also, 
very few that I know. Even in Ghana, Gati, you know, we used to be prominent, has almost died in terms of effectiveness. So we need those common platforms. And that's the reason why Kabod Group has taken the initiative of putting in place, you know, the Association of Language Company in Africa together with, you know, Bolingo Consort, because we realize that alone, yes, we can go fast, but together we can go far. Yes, it's important to work in union. It's important to work together, you know, because there are certain challenges. There are certain issues that alone you cannot address it. You can't go alone in the movie industry and, and, and attempt to change the practices that have been done there. So we need a stronger platform to conduct advocacy, awareness, so that people will know the implication and know the consequences, you know, of not abiding to cultural sensitivity. And I will use this platform to invite anyone who would like to join the Association of Language Company in Africa to reach out to us via Kabod Group or Bolingo Consult or the Alert Group on LinkedIn. And we are going to be pleased to work together with you so that we can be stronger and avoid these nonsenses mm-hmm. of happening in the future. Great. And then in the month of May, we delved into the world of conference interpreting with Paul Theory. Another very interesting episode. Let's have a quick listen to that as well. Uh, y- it just performs some magic. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, such instances are commonplace, you know, in the life of the interpreter. Every time, I mean, you go for a conference, you are likely to come across such instances. That's why you ought to prepare, go to the documentation, make sure you have a glossary and so on and so forth. But, you know, sometimes those... um Participants can, you know, do some kind of digression. They will go and talk about something else. But that something else is not simple. It's so complicated and very full of terminologies that you're like, oh boy. But, you know, that's why it's good for you to have a good level of mastery of pressure. That will help you, you know, maintain your composure and mobilize all your cognitive resources in an optimal manner so as to give a nice delivery. When something comes across that you are, I mean, it comes as a bullet, just keep calm. Because if you are panicking, the one listening to you is likely to doubt what you'll be saying. Is he sure or is not sure what he's saying? So when it comes, you try, if you're not finding the right expression directly in the target language, you try and make sure you understand the overall idea of what the person uh, just said, the person's submission, and you just give it out. The main substance of what he said, sometimes it's not good for the interpreter to focus on words, but he should focus on the substance, the very substance of the message that was delivered by the speaker. Right. The subsequent episode showcased the inspiring work of Theovision International and their mission to spread the gospel of Christ in various African languages. Have a listen. Hmm. As for the impact, actually, that's what gets us going. That's what gets our team going. Because the moment we hear the impact stories, we know God is working. Um, Even on the field, when the team is recording the Bible on the field, what they do is at the end of the recording, they play back for the community to hear what they have recorded. And sometimes you have um, people from other religion coming to know the Lord because they can see that, wow. The Lord speaks their heart language and he's not far away from them. He's actually among them. So they can relate. Just picture you get into a, um, a country and then you hear someone speak your heart language, your local language. Let's say you don't know anybody there except they speak a foreign language that you don't understand. And then out of the blue, you hear someone speaking your local language somewhere. 
How do you feel? You just want to connect with the person. You want to get closer to the person. You want to even befriend the person because the person is speaking your language in the foreign land. And that's what happens with the audio Bible. People get to know that Jesus is not far away from them. He actually is among them and he speaks to their hearts that they can understand. There are so many testimonies, um, testimonies like in the Volta region of Ghana, where when we got into that community, then we set up a Bible listening group using the Ewe language. An 84-year-old man, and this man was very old. He was an idol worshiper. And the way the Bible listening groups are done is they meet in a group outside under a tree in the classroom. So he was just passing by and very curious and decided to just go and sit in and hear what these guys were listening to. And the good thing that drew him was they were listening to something that he could relate to. It was in his language. He was so excited, very excited. So he was listening to it for some time. And then um, our team came back to Accra. And normally when we set up the Bible listening group, we go back in a month to monitor. And while we were away, the missionary in the community said, this man has given his life to Christ because um, he was hearing things like, you know, um, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You know, he was wondering what that was. Imagine hearing that for the first time in your language, you know. So he gave his life to Christ. And the month later, when we were going back into the community and we got into the community, we heard that this man had passed away. He was dead and gone. Now, it brought tears into my eye because I realized that imagine if we didn't take the word of God in his own language, in audio at that time, what would have happened to this 84-year-old man? He was very old. He was almost gone. And these stories keep us going because we see the impact. People can relate to the word of God. People can engage with scripture. People are now seeing the lights because now they can relate with it in the way they best understand. This is just one out of a, a thousand testimonies that we receive. And how we measure the impact, we have missionaries on the field, we have personnel on the field that monitor these Bible listening groups, gather testimonies and report back to our team in the office. And we have teams that go back every month to, to monitor these groups. Sometimes these groups, you have um, um, the groups moving from, let's say they start from five, number of people in a group. The next time you go there, there are about 20 people in a group. The next time you go there, the whole community has gathered, just listening to God's word in their mother tongue. That's what keeps us going. So the impact, there are many. If I'm telling the, the stories, I'm sure we won't, won't finish this interview. So I'll just leave it here. And we thank God for these impact stories. Nice. And then in July, we spent time with translator and content writer Sopudu Egbodo, dwelling on the transformative power of translation in Igbo and Nigerian Pidgin English. Take a quick listen. Okay. Thank you for this question. Um, I'm actually glad you're asking this question. First and foremost, if you actually read that particular blog um, post I wrote on how to find the best Nigerian translators in any language, you find out that um, I mentioned the various ways you, you'll be able to get them and, and platforms you, you'll be able to find the best of Nigerian translators. Now, if a business is relying on LinkedIn to hire translators, there are a lot of things that happen within the translation industry um, that people outside doesn't know, <laughs> people outside doesn't know about. <laughs> 
it's, it's just things that um, people within the family know more about and they suffer it. And most of them, they don't speak out. And that one thing is that a lot of translation companies and businesses as well, they reach out to you and say, oh, um, there's a project that we need to do urgently. Translation project we need to do in your language pair urgently. And we need you to tell us your, your rates, how, how much you charge and and also you do this test so that we 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 able to we be able to know whether you are good in this okay and the translator will also submit them cv most times and after going through all these processes these businesses will not get back to the translator they will ghost you they will send you ndm agreements to sign you sign the agreements send to them they acknowledge the agreements and they they go to bed they just go and relax the urgent work they won't send you anymore in fact, a company can hire you this year and the next three, four, five years. They will, they're forgetting about you. They will keep hiring more people in your language pay. And they will forgetting about, forgetting about you. They won't send you jobs. Now, where it becomes commonship is that when that happens, those translators that they've already asked to sign NDAs, you know when you sign an NDA, the company has hired you. That's the thing. Now, the translator will joyfully go to LinkedIn and share their happy moments. Let me just use that word, their happy moment. Oh, I've been hired by this company. They will add it to their LinkedIn profile as an experience. Meanwhile, the company has not given them a, a job to do to justify the experience. They've already added on, on their LinkedIn profile. Uh-huh. That, that's, how it, that's how it becomes commonship. You now having that experience on your wall on LinkedIn and People getting to land on your page on LinkedIn and seeing that experience. Oh, this guy has this experience and truly you've been hired. It's not the fault of the translators that they've been hired and ghosted on. But for them to have that experience there and they, they will be deceiving more people that will be seeing that experience on their LinkedIn profile. So it becomes um, commonship, even though the translator didn't mean it that way. They are just sharing what they feel like should be their experience on LinkedIn. So many people just get deceived because of that. And they also hire them because of the experience that they've not even, they've not even um, done anything on. So that's why I say it's commonship. But like I mentioned in the blog post, there are a lot of ways to actually get the best of translators in Nigerian languages. Some of them are offline. And that has to be, um, you have to get those people through the translation companies that have worked with them um, in the past. And... That's the best way to, to get the best translators because they already have people they've worked with in the past. And then the second way I mentioned them, um, LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn is, is a very good platform where you can get very good Nigerian translators. You can know them from the experiences they are sharing on LinkedIn and from their profile as well. That's why I, that's why I now mentioned that the profile can be deceptive sometimes if they do not have a re- real life experience on what they are adding on their profiles. So that's the second part. Then the third part is um, you can get them on pros as well. But on pros, you have everybody on pros. But there are also ways to actually get to um, know the best. And they are in my article. If you if you like to um, know more about it, you can read the article and see, see what I, I said there. Thank you. In the ensuing episode, we celebrated Christelle Zami's work, highlighting her impact on localizing African children's literature through her book, Ami Series. Here's a snippet of that conversation. Yeah, uh, when it comes to localization, uh, we worked a lot with the linguists. Um, we had meetings, uh, they listened to us, they listened to the idea, the dream behind the book, because it's also very important. You cannot localize anything where the author himself or maybe like the owner is not there because the owner has to share 
the reason why the product exists, the reason why the, the, the content exists in the first place for you to be able to understand how to, I would not say transpose, but how to also share it in the other culture. It's very key. Now, coming back to the localization aspect and why it's important to involve um, professionals, there is no way you'll be able to localize your content, your book, your article or whatsoever you want to share outside there if you don't involve the professionals. Why? Because they know the culture better than you. You are coming from a totally different culture. And sometimes you're even coming from this very culture, but you didn't grow up in the environment where your target audience grew up. So, you know, there, there can be conflict in interest or maybe like you can affect their sensibility if you're not careful. And that's why you really need to involve the professionals there. They will look at uh, the whole content. They will make suggestions. They will tell you exactly what needs to be changed, what is okay, what is acceptable and what is not. So if you don't do that, maybe you publish your book and then people will still complain about the content. Some of them will not even accept it because for them it's a taboo. So in order to avoid that, sit down. It's, it's more or less like, a lot of conversations going on between you, the publisher, and also like the, the language professionals. You share ideas, you agree on points, you disagree, and then you build on the conclusions every single day. Right. We then featured Lewis Colcott Stevens, um, CEO of Ear Candy, which, which is a content localization company based in Johannesburg, South Africa. She shared profound insights into the world of localization. Let's listen to a bit of that episode. Well, the obvious answer is going to be all around AI, synthesized voices, machine translation. And yes, of course, I mean, those are majorly disruptive factors across the, the language services landscape. And particularly, you know, dubbing companies. It's interesting, like I see people are either really for or really against what synthesized voices mean for them. And I think that Africa is a slightly different landscape because I see a very clear need for both. So from a creative perspective and a job creation point of view, we, when telling stories, our language landscape is so diverse that it makes sense to continue working with actors and voice talent in order to achieve that because the economies of scale just aren't there from an AI voice perspective. That being said, we have such a huge need for educational and informational content that down the line, absolutely, there's a, a place for machine translation um, and potentially synthesized voices. So I think you know, those are the, the obvious trends that, that exist within the industry as a whole and, and then on the continent. For me, I think the most exciting trend that I'm seeing is that, you know, when we started Ear Candy, it was all about connecting content to Africa. So it was global content. It came from across the world. And then we would localize it for audiences in you know, a growing number now, now 30 plus languages. However, what I see as even more exciting now is that more and more we are working on content from Africa that we are then globalizing into Western languages in order for audiences across the world to watch our stories. Right. And I think that, that, that is something that I get super juiced about. 
because it, it, it speaks to everything that I believe and everything that I've been saying in this, you know, in, in this conversation. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I think that that is certainly a trend we need to watch. And I think it's a trend that content creators need to be aware of mm-hmm. because if they're wanting to really make that work for them and make their content truly global, they've got to keep that in mind when creating their content. And I think that what I do notice about pan-African content creators or storytellers or filmmakers is that not enough focus is put on their assets in creating assets that will enable them to extend the value chain on their story. So they are not spending enough time creating a transcript, you know, a dub-ready dialogue sheet. Um, When they are in mix, they are not, you know, creating audio separates. And that impacts their ability to globalize their story. So I think that from a demand perspective, in order for you to take your story global, you are going to need to have to pay attention to those things. And they're not difficult to put in place. I think that so often storytellers, filmmakers, content creators, whatever you want to call them, is it's all about, I've got to create the story. Um, but the business of telling your story is ensuring that you've got that set of assets that are going to enable you to tell and retell that story in, in, in many languages. And that's where the money really sits. So I think that that is something that we've got to be more aware of and we have to get better at. We need to educate ourselves on what's required in order to make that happen accurately and that uh, our, our assets meet um, you know, international broadcast standards. So those are things that I harp on about all the time and um, try and speak as, as often as possible to filmmakers about so that they get it and that then they not just get it, that they do it. And then in the month of October, we explored Denise Amankwa's study, offering us an insightful perspective on, on how colonial languages have been placed on the pedestal at the expense of African languages. Here's a snippet of that episode. Yep, sure. So um, for all participants, so that's the parents of the children who are attending these nurseries and the educators who are um, attending these nurseries, for all of them, there was a really, really, really strong um, importance of English and other languages like French. Some of them said Mandarin, some of them said Spanish, but English was like the most important language to them which isn't entirely surprising um, for the practitioners because they have to assess in English. That's what they have to measure in school. Um, And there's pressure from the curriculum to make sure that the children's English develop. Um, And the same for the parents. For most of them, the most important thing to them was for their child to gain proficiency in English because of um, academic reasons. And there was also a very low status attributed to African languages from the parents, which was very sad to me, and also from the educators, which is also sad to me because um, they, the, the, as I said before, the teachers have all had training in bilingualism. They do lots of amazing things in the classroom. Like they have... Um, some, something we'd call a water station, so it's where children can access and pour water for themselves. And all, they have um, the word water translated into different um, languages, no African language there. 
They have a huge um, dual language book area. So they have books translated into some of the children's languages. None of them are in African languages. They have a welcome sign um, with um, welcome translated into different languages. None of the um, welcome signs are in an African language. So to me, again, it was just like there's a clear lack of importance attributed to African languages. And also, um, when I spoke with the earliest professionals, they didn't even consider their children of African descent to be um, what they call EAL, which is a term given to children that have an, another language at home. They didn't even see it. It's like the, the African children's bilingualism was invisible to them because their parents can speak English. Um, so that's worrying because if the teachers aren't recognizing them, as bilingual, then they're not even having conversations like, which language do you speak at home? Do you want to continue speaking this language at home? And the, those are the important um, kind of um, questions that early as professionals should be having with parents early on as well, so that they're sharing the right messages, they're um, challenging misconceptions, they're demystifying the idea of bilingualism because there are lots of myths surrounding it. And um, a last uh, final finding, I would say, is that um, the African parents, their schooling experiences heavily shaped their views on their native language. And honestly, the conversations I had with them was very upsetting. Some of them have had quite traumatic experiences where they were beaten for speaking their language, or some of them were like praised. So they were um, encouraged to kind of snitch on other friends or peers that were caught speaking the language um, for one of my um, trips to Ghana, I actually saw a school that had a sign that said, speak English always. So there were kind of covert ways of English being prioritized for the Africans, um, African parents. And there were more overt ways, like the signs I'm talking about. Um, so that was really sad. And one of the parents um, even said that that he was given more opportunities from his family um, to further his education because he was the child that spoke the most English. So that was sad to me. And then our penultimate episode, which we aired just last month, um, coincided with the International Koiko Language Week celebration. And as such, we spent time with Jeffrey Hatzenberg, an advocate for the Koiko language. Let's have a quick listen. Thanks for the question. Our plans for 2024 is our team is the same team as for this year in the International Koikwe Language Week, Sida Kuk Sida Huvas or our land, our language. That is our theme that we are hearing for this year. That's coming because remember, we are now in the fourth or third year of the decade of indigenous languages by the United Nations UNESCO arm. All right. I believe that episode ushers us perfectly into the new year. Um, as we close the season of Africa's LSP podcast, I want to extend my heartfelt thanks to all our incredible guests and our dedicated listeners. Your stories, insights, and, and, and support have made this journey unforgettable. Um, to our listeners, stay tuned for more inspiring stories in our upcoming seasons. Until then, keep celebrating diversity, languages, and cultures. Thanks for tuning in to Africa's LSP podcast. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and learned something new. For feedback or inquiries, 
reach out to us at podcast at bolingoconsult.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite platforms. Until next time, stay curious and keep growing.